This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 21st, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The battle lines are being drawn over the June vote for Britain to leave the European Union. Tom Clardy is managing editor of the Cato Journal and former executive director of London's Adam Smith Institute. We spoke about the so-called Brexit last week. Well, the European Union has evolved considerably over the last uh, 60 years, I suppose, since um, we initially created the European Coal and Steel Community after the Second World War. Uh, that was just a collection of a few European countries um, trading very particular goods. Uh, today, we have something much more akin to a superstate. Um, it, it's certainly not quite a superstate yet, but it is far more than a trading area. You know, I think that a good way to think about what the European Union is like um, is by way of an analogy, and I think this might work for an American audience. You know, if you, uh, as an American, were told you could have free trade from the northern tip of Canada to the southern tip of Argentina. That would sound quite good. Um, if you were then told that this free trade would not just involve the movement of goods, services, and capital, uh, but also people, that anyone from anywhere in the Americas would be able to settle and work anywhere else, uh, well, okay, you and I, Caleb, as libertarians, as free market guys, we'd still like that idea. I think you might lose the support of at least some of the population at that point. Uh, but then you've got to go to a third level um, and say you're going to have a set of Pan American political institutions, a parliament, a commission, a permanent bureaucracy, uh, courts of justice. Um, these institutions are going to have the power to make rules and laws in a very wide variety of areas, everything from environmental legislation down to employment law. Uh, and those laws are going to be supreme. They're going to take precedence over anything that you as the United States of America were able to do. By the way, you would only have about a 8.4% voting power in those political institutions. Thinking of that as America, as part of a Pan-American Union, is rather similar to the relationship Britain has with the European Union. So much more than a trading area, uh, not quite a superstate, but this is um, a, an organization which has its own uh, political life, its own political bodies. So the uh, what would normally be rules meted out by trade agreements mm -hmm. or some sort of immigration agreements between and among countries are rest within this super state that you're describing. That, that, that's right, yes. So why or where did this issue come from where Great Britain says, we want to get out? Or some people in Great Britain say, we want to get out of this. We don't, we don't like this deal anymore. Right. Some people in Great Britain, certainly, yeah. So it's been bubbling up for a long time. I mean, Britain, almost uniquely among European countries, certainly if you go back a few years, has always had a strong Eurosceptic movement. Um, a large group of people who don't particularly like the EU, or at least don't like the direction that it's gone um, in the last few decades, uh, and, and want to get out, uh, who want to reassert their independence. But the reason that we're having a referendum this June, June the 23rd, 2016, uh, is largely political. Um, if you go back to 2013, David Cameron, uh, British Prime Minister, then as part of a conservative liberal coalition, uh, was worried that in the upcoming 2015 general election, he was going to lose a lot of votes uh, to the right of the Conservative Party, uh, to the UK Independence Party. Now, this is a group which maybe uh, adopts more radical conservative positions on a whole range of issues, whether they're economic, um, whether they're related to immigration. But their number one selling point was their 
uh, desire to leave the European Union. The, the clue was in the name, really, the UK Independence Party. So on the one hand, Cameron was worried about losing votes to them. Uh, and, and it wasn't so much actually that the UK Independence Party was ever likely to win a lot of seats in the British Parliament. Um, it was more that uh, if the Conservatives lost votes to the UK Independence Party, uh, this would swing some of the marginals in favour of the Labour Party, their main opposition. Um, there was also, though, a problem within the Conservative Party, which for as long as anyone can remember, probably as long as there's been a European question to be divided on, Conservatives have been divided on it, uh, between those who think Britain absolutely must be independent and those who favour more European integration, or at least are comfortable with the status quo, the amount of European integration that we have right now. A couple of um, David Cameron's MPs defected to the UK Independence Party around this time. Uh, and so anyway, the long story short is that in 2013, to try and shore up his vote, to try and stabilise his support within his own party, David Cameron promised that were he re-elected in 2015, uh, he would hold a referendum on Britain's membership of the, uh, of the EU, an in or out referendum it was called. Now this referendum would take place by the end of 2017, but after David Cameron had renegotiated Britain's relationship with Europe. Uh, at the time he talked about a full-on treaty change trying to create the kind of Europe um, that British Conservatives, uh, I suppose, uh, have always favoured. Um, now. That got very much watered down during this renegotiation process, and maybe we can come back to that. But it's probably worth pointing out that I don't really believe, most people don't believe, that David Cameron expected to hold this referendum. Uh, reason being that few people thought with the political dynamics and the electoral math at the time that the Conservatives would be able to win an outright majority in 2015. Their best case scenario was largely thought to be another referendum with the Liberal Democrats and a co uh, sorry another coalition with the Liberal Democrats and a, a renewed Liberal Conservative coalition would probably have ruled out the possibility of an EU referendum. So Cameron promised it. He wasn't expecting to do it. I think he was taken by surprise when, after winning an outright majority, to uh, enormous surprise both in Britain and around the world, uh, he then had to go on a whistle-stop tour of the European Union trying to drum up support uh, for massive. Uh, treaty change, his initial plans, uh, downgraded to a few technical uh, SOPs to help him out. Uh, now, if uh, this referendum succeeds, that will begin a whole other process right. in at the end of which Britain will have less integration with the rest of the European Union. What does that process look like? Well, I think it's important that you've uh, You've described it as a process. A lot of people in Britain, I think, are thinking of this European Union uh, referendum as an event, um, that the vote will happen and either we'll stay in or we'll be out, uh, and then everything will be different. No, you're right. It's the beginning of a process. Um, legally speaking, it would be the beginning of, I think, invoking our Article 50 rights under the most recent European treaty, the Lisbon Treaty. Now, it's worth noting that this was something that was created years after this economic integration post-World War II had, had begun and had been going on for a long time. Right. There was no, if I understand uh, you correctly, there was no means to exit 
before this 1970s. Well, no, that, I mean, that's not strictly true. So um, there was no spelled out way to exit. Um, and I guess no one wanted to exit for most of that period, so it never came up. But I think it's always been assumed that the European Union, since it's not actually a nation state, and it's not quite a super state, although it has some characteristics of one. Uh, now, because of the nature of the organization, um, it's a collection of sovereign states. If one of those states wanted to leave, they could. Um, it may be difficult in, in certain respects, but the idea was basically if you say you're going, you can go. There's just no process laid out in law that would explain how that would happen. It would be an entirely political negotiation at that point. So the Lisbon Treaty, which was a treaty in the 2000s actually, so fairly recent, um, for the first time laid out a process, sketched out a process, I should say, um, because it's not terribly well developed, but uh, once you decide to leave and you invoke Article 50, uh, that fires the gun on a two-year period of renegotiation, during which time you have to work out what kind of relationship the country leaving the EU and the rest of the EU will have once those two years are up. So maintaining, presumably, uh, broad, broadly free trade, uh, presumably uh, travel between the countries would be Right. Still fairly simple, if if a little more difficult. So what sure. are the, from, well, from your perspective and from perspective the perspective of others, what are the good parts that Britain would like to keep and uh, everybody else would like to keep? Okay. Well, now, in theory, people would be more or less agreed on the good parts. And, and also, in theory, the, um, that Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty does, I think, commit the European Union to trying to pursue a beneficial trading arrangement, trying to maintain friendly and peaceful cooperation and, and neighborly relationships and so on. Um, so you would have a situation, I think, if Britain uh, voted to leave the European Union, where both sides this is again in theory, would be trying to maintain as much of the trading relationship as they could. Um, and now, the reason that's important is that 45% you know, of Britain's exports go to the EU. Uh, were the UK an independent country, it would be the EU's single biggest trading partner. So clearly, um, that economic relationship is an important one. Now, in terms of travel, uh, just movement of people, actually, uh, there are 2 million Britons living elsewhere in the European Union. There are 3 million or so uh, people from elsewhere in the European Union living in Britain. So the UK is, is fairly well intertwined with Europe. And so there are a lot of pretty difficult issues there to work out. Now, there's been some talk of what would be the model for an independent Britain, um, a Britain that was leaving the EU. What would be the kind of relationship that we would expect it to have? Now, because a country hasn't actually left the European Union before, you can't uh, say, well, we'll just do that. Uh, on the other hand, there are countries in the European continent um, that have a more sort of semi-detached relationship with the EU. Uh, Switzerland is one, Norway is another. Now, their relationships add up to more or less the same thing. Uh, they're, they're members without being members. Um, so they have access to the European single market. Um, they have to make some budget contributions towards the EU. They have to accept some of the European Union regulation. But Switzerland and Norway have 
slightly different relationships between the two of them. Uh, Norway is a member of the European Economic Area, uh, which means that they um, they basically they buy wholesale into the whole of the European single market. Switzerland, on the other hand, has negotiated a number of bilateral treaties, quite a large number of bilateral treaties, actually, in specific areas. Now, it amounts to kind of the same thing. Um, but those, those, I suppose, are the two model relationships that Britain might be looking at. There's also an organization called the European Free Trade Area, uh, which includes countries like Iceland, for example, and Norway and Switzerland. So there, it's fair to say that there are these very, many overlapping different groups that cover different kinds of arrangements that many yeah. different countries within and without the European Union engage in or choose not to engage in. Indeed, It yes. would seem that Brexit then should be viewed as a much less controversial thing than the way it it is being presented. Yeah, I, you're right. And first of all, you can go on Wikipedia and there, I think, is a, a, a wonderful picture uh, laying out all of these different overlapping relationships that exist between European countries, different institutions that they're members of or not members of. and what that entails, it's incredibly complicated. Uh, it's the kind of system you would never set out to design, but that's simply what Europe has at this point. And Britain is not participating in the euro. No, for example. And that, that's, that's one way that it makes it seem that Brexit isn't that huge of a deal. So that's, that's really the interesting question. You know, what's going to happen if Britain votes to leave? Um, and this, this really determines the arguments on both sides uh, of whether Britain should leave or shouldn't leave. So. Um, those on the so-called Brexit campaign, those who want to leave, uh, will say that Britain can have um, most of the benefits of European Union membership, the access to European markets, uh, without a lot of the downsides that come with it, um, like the budget, like the common agricultural policy, like the external tariff, like not being able to have uh, an independent trade policy, like having to submit to all sorts of regulations that we might not want, and so on. Uh, so, you know, people would say, we could be more free market, basically, if we weren't in the EU. And if we were more free market, we could have much stronger growth. That's that's one argument. Another one of the arguments that, that is advanced uh, for Britain leaving the EU is that we would have less migration. Um, so from the free market perspective, that kind of seems contradictory, at least from a libertarian perspective. Um, we might tend to think that economic migration is a good thing. Um, but for those who are voting to leave, um, as opposed to those who are simply making the intellectual arguments, for those who want to vote for Britain to leave the EU, um, an awful lot of their focus is on migration and on trying to stop the amount of migration that we, we currently have, an awful lot of which is from continental Europe, from other European Union countries. Um, so in terms of what will change, migration probably is going to be one of the, the biggest things. Even there, though, it's not clear that Britain leaving the EU would mean no more migration from European Union countries because I've talked already about Norway and Switzerland. They both are basically part of that free movement zone. Uh, European Union citizens can go and live in those countries and work in those countries. Uh, and this actually is something that's extremely important to the EU. When the Swiss voted in a referendum, um, it may have been last year or the year before, that they would try and restrict the free movement of people from the rest of the EU into Switzerland, the EU said, well, if you implement this referendum decision, if you pass laws putting it into effect, um, we're going to start unwinding a lot of the other economic relationships that we have, a lot of those bilateral treaties. But that's no different than any relationships that 
Switzerland might have with any other country. No, indeed, indeed it isn't. You do um, this, we'll do that. Right. And, and, and so, again, there, there are a couple of divergent opinions here on Britain post-EU referendum. If Brexit wins, if people vote to leave the EU, um, what kind of a deal is Britain going to get? Now, some people will say... Britain is the fifth largest economy in the world. Um, it has still pretty significant geopolitical power. Uh, we ought to be able to get a very good deal. Um, if Switzerland can get a decent deal, if Norway can get a decent deal, if Iceland, which has about three to 400,000 people living there, can get a fairly good deal with the EU, we should be able to get at least that, if not more. It seems reasonable. On the other hand, there is the argument that most things in the European Union are not driven by economics. Most things in the European Union are driven by politics. This has been a constant refrain during the sovereign debt crisis, the, the, the broader Eurozone crisis, um, that economics are not driving European decision-making. Politics are. And if politics takes a front seat, um, I, you can imagine Britain actually not getting the kind of deal that it wants. Uh, you can imagine it getting maybe a slightly rough deal. Because although I think it would be foolish of both sides um, to allow that to happen, to, to kind of allow the trading relationship to deteriorate, for example, um, you might expect some European policymakers to say, well, we need to punish Britain from, from leaving the EU, uh, maybe in order to discourage other people from following their example. Um, maybe also there would be some frustration, uh, perhaps understandable frustration on the part of EU policymakers, uh, that Britain has chosen to have this argument when Europe is still dealing with an ongoing economic crisis, which um, is constantly threatening to re-emerge as, as a major issue, uh, when it has uh, a huge uh, refugee crisis on its southern borders, uh, and indeed when it faces uh, sort of Russian aggression on its eastern borders as well, European politicians might say, you know, Britain, we've got enough to deal with without having to worry about you and your desire for greater national sovereignty. Um, and we're going to be so busy unwinding the relationships that we have with you as an EU member that we're not going to have time or the inclination to build the, the kind of beneficial economic relationship that you assume would be yours. So what I've just described actually is, is one of the main arguments on the side of the Remain campaign, those who want Britain to remain in the EU, uh, that Britain faces massive uncertainty if they vote to leave, uh, and that their economic relationship could be significantly damaged. Uh, and of course, I think in most political campaigns, the status quo um, will tend to have the upper hand. Um, and this is one of the things that people are really worried about anyway. Those who are going to vote to remain, for Britain to remain in the EU, the main thing driving that decision um, is that they are worried about the economic consequences of voting to leave. Tom Clardy is managing editor of the Cato Institute's Cato Journal. Read more of his work at cato.org.